Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Live for the NASDAQ market side overlooking New York's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Hi, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan, and your traders on the desk tonight are Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, another black eye for Boeing and its investors. Shares down again. The jet maker delaying the return of its 737 MAX again. Is this, should this be the final straw for investors? Plus, we're following a major developing story out of Asia, where a deadly new virus is spreading fast. The first confirmed case now in the United States. Markets and the world on edge. As we learn more, we're going to bring you up to speed on what we know at this hour. And later, longtime market bull Tony Dwyer leaves the pen, saying now is the time to take some profits. I'll tell you what he's got him a little bit nervous about the future of the market. All that ahead. But we begin with earnings, because we've got alerts on both IBM and Netflix. Both stocks on the move after reporting their numbers. Both stocks moving higher. And as always, full team coverage standing by to break down the big moves. We've got Julia Borston digging out on Netflix. But let's begin with Deirdre Bosa and a major move higher for IBM. A little green on the screen for Big Blue, Deirdre. That's right, Brian. Ending its streak of declining year-over-year revenue. Saw five quarters of that. But the real question here, Brian, is it too soon to call a turnaround? Remember that we saw recovery in 2018 as well. That didn't last. This quarter, revenue grew by just a tenth of a percent. And shares are popping partly because expectations were so low and losing some of those earlier gains now up just lower than 4%. Now, a sustained turnaround will largely depend on Jenny Rometty's big bet on hybrid cloud and her $33 billion Red Hat acquisition. Now, there are early signs that those efforts are showing some promise. This quarter, IBM says cloud revenue hit $6.8 billion and now comprises nearly 30% of total revenue. Ahead of the report, though, guys, IBM saw downgrades from Morgan Stanley and from Evercore. In the Morgan Stanley report, this table suggesting that based on Bermetti's age and tenure, a CEO transition could be likely. The typical retirement age for an IBM CEO is 60, Bermetti is 63, and she's been presiding over a turnaround without much luck for eight years. Now, Morgan Stanley also suggesting that Big Blue needs a more meaningful shift in the portfolio for long-term revenue growth. So, guys, while today was a much-needed beat and shares are up nearly 4% in the after hours, remember that they are underperforming the S&P over the last quarter, year, and the last decade. Brian? All right, dear Jabosa, thank you very much. Let's go around the horn now and trade IBM. Guy Adami, yes, I, mean, okay, I understand the results good. The, the stock is up. It was a $150 stock less than a year ago. It was $180 stock In three years ago. I mean, I don't think we want investors It was $140 a- stock 10 years ago. Sorry, I didn't mean to be so emphatic about yeah, it. But I just boy, throwing boy. names and numbers. I, so about, here, so about that one? 10 years ago. Yes, if prepared. you just look at the pop, Guy, you say, okay, good news. We have to look at this holistically in a longer-term perspective. Yeah, I agree with you. And we've said for a long time on this show, you know IBM is getting it wrong. They're in the wrong businesses. Their mix is bad. But guess what? A lot of what Deirdre just said makes a lot of sense. Operating margins for this quarter were 51.8%, I think. Same quarter last year, 49 and change. That is significant. Why? (laughs) Because at least their product mix is getting better. And this cloud that she spoke up, up 21% year over year, that's good. And 
if Gina does step down after this tenure, this is the quarter to do it. So IBM is on the verge of breaking out of a four-year downtrend. And, you know, valuation has always been the reason. It actually might be the reason this year. And you got some downgrades ahead of the earnings. Which is good. Yeah, okay, normally it's good you want to take the contrarian. But, Tim, your point is very well taken. I mean, IBM and... You know, a lot of good people there, but this has not exactly been a moneymaker for its investors for a long time. No, and and so color me cautious just because I I, I think this this Red Hat acquisition, which they paid a lot of money for, I think it was north of $34 billion, um, is is showing that, look, uh, recurring revenue stream, we all know, is what big cap, mega cap tech, especially Microsoft and Amazon and Google now, are are really getting outperformance on the multiple. That's what this is all about, because if they can start to go from software sales to recurring revenue, and now it's... uh, about 20% the size of Amazon's uh, cloud business at, at a $7.2 billion number. It's meaningful. It's very real. Um, but we've been watching this stock for a long time, looking to make that turn. I don't think you need to jump in here tomorrow and say it's, it's a brand new day. Yeah, I just wonder if, if uh, Ms. Rometty's last trick at IBM would be to kind of break up these two businesses, break up the faster growing things. We saw it done at Hewlett. We saw it with eBay and PayPal a few years ago. To me, it seemed like an obvious sort of choice, and she seemed like the obvious person to kind of preside over that thing and then kind of find her way to the door a little bit. But I, I just don't think that Cognitive Solutions, some of these cloud businesses, they're big enough to kind of make this sort of difference within this legacy business that IBM has. So to me, I just don't find it too exciting right here. I don't not expect investors to pile into this thing. For this I actually number. find it really exciting oh, here. Wow. I think everything that you guys mentioned are positive catalysts for this stock. You know, let's just say it, the stock's gone nowhere for a long period of time. That tells me that current management probably isn't exactly the people you want to have in there. So if Ginny Rometty is to retire, I think the stock pops on that. If they even talk about breaking it up in this market environment, I think that's good. And then the third thing is they've got a 4.5% dividend yield. In a stock environment with anything that with a yield that's getting bid, I've now got stabilized earnings, and I've got a good dividend yield and multiple catalysts. So you don't care about growth. But, Beeks, do you think this is the sort of market that actually is is kind of rewarding, like laggards, rewarding, uh, like unpolished gems, that sort of thing? There's there's so much work that needs to be done here at this stage of this cycle. What what work needs to be done? They're turning around their revenue. They got a four and a half percent dividend yield. I think that's enough for this market. Well, and they're going to put there's twelve and a half billion of free cash flow in 2020. The, these these guys are certainly giving you some sense. I would argue, by the way, Dan, that the, the market's rewarding almost anyone. And I think the market is looking for uh, relative value also in mega cap tech, where frankly, it's, it's hard to find any value. So on a relative basis to itself, you can make that argument with IBM. But I'm not ready to jump. I, on I do want the analyst community rating is hold on average. I mean, I don't know how many big cap tech stocks to say that before we move on to Netflix. Just without picking on IBM guy, Dami, this whole thing about if basically if you're 60, you got to go, you're eight years. This, this a, is that a, these are stupid policies now, aren't they? Well, I, mean, I hope that's the case. Guy, guy, you got another result. I'm on borrowed time. You know what I mean? Because you got these companies, you're, you're doing a, a huge deal with Red Hat. If somebody says, oh, you know, Virginia Rometty, you're, you know, you're 60 or whatever. It's 10 Can we years. get her name straight? I've heard Gina, Ginny, and now Virginia. That's her, well, I said her actual name. Because I don't oh, know where that woman got Ginny. Guy hit her with a G. Anyway. So you, you're right. And I, I shouldn't have hit her with a Ginny, a Gina. I should, I should have said the CEO of IBM. You are correct. But with that said, I think it is a perfect time for her to leave. And I think if you listen, Microsoft five years ago, everybody was saying Microsoft is dead in the water. They can't turn that that aircraft carry around. Guess what? They got in a different big business mix, brought in a new CEO, and look what it's done over the last three or four years. You could do the I'm same thing with policies where you hit an age, you got to go. I mean, these seems like relics of another era to me in some respects, but whatever. 
All right. Sticking with IBM, we're going to be hearing from Virginia, Ginny <laughs> Rometty, tomorrow morning on Squawk Box, live from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Suisse. Let's now turn to another big name on the move in the after hours. That is Netflix trading higher after reporting results. Julia Borston, NLA, to break down those numbers. The stock's up, Julia, but the subscriber numbers, maybe not what everybody was looking for. Well, Brian, Netflix did add more subscribers than expected in the fourth quarter, 8.76 million subscribers. Now, that surpasses the 7.6 million the company itself forecast. But growth did continue to slow in the U.S. Just 420,000 U.S. subscribers were added versus the 600,000 that the company itself projected. And Netflix's guidance for the first quarter was the addition of 7 million subscribers worldwide. That missed analyst projections by 1.5 million subscribers. CEO Reed Hastings highlighting interest in their show The Witcher, despite the launch of rivals Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus, saying that The Witcher is tracking to be its best first season TV series with 76 million households watching in the first four weeks. Now, coming up on the call, which starts in about an hour, we're sure to hear Hastings talk more about competition. He wrote that their viewing growth is consistent with recent quarters, despite a number of new rivals. Netflix also announced it's changing the way it measures viewing. It's now no longer counting a view as watching 70% of an episode or a film. Now reporting on accounts that choose to watch, which means watching for at least two minutes. So we'll have to see if they have any more commentary about this. It's already drawing some buzz online. And also if they see if they say how many people have watched Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. They said it was popular, but no numbers from Netflix yet. Brian? Hold on, Julia. Did you just say if, if, if somebody theoretically watches, and I'm doing the air quote thing, for two minutes, they're going to consider that a view? Yep, there's a two footnote minutes. here. I'm looking at it right here. And they say now they're reporting on households, friends, accounts that choose to watch a given title. The footnote says choose to watch and did watch for at least two minutes. That's long enough to indicate that the choice was intentional. And that is the precise definition. They say it's similar to how views are measured on YouTube, the BBC player, or how um, they count in the New York Times. There's, auto, has there's autoplay, right? I mean, if you just sit there and do nothing, it just keeps going, right? I mean, well, this is only if you, intentional viewing. So if you click to open something up, <clears throat> if you watch it for two minutes, there it, it seems like they would not count okay. autoplay. But as you can imagine, this is already sparking some criticism on Twitter. Yeah, I, I, well, good. Nothing sparks criticism on Twitter. It's a land of happiness and compliments. Julia Borston, thank you very much. Uh, okay, I, the reason I dwell on that a little bit, BK, was that you know we go on these numbers. They say 26 million people watch The Irishman. Whatever. Right. Ostensibly, if you only got to watch two, two minutes of something, all their numbers are going to go up. And it, but we need, I think, as investors, to realize this and be a little careful. I would argue that if you watch the first two minutes of The Irishman, you didn't need to watch the other three hours. Wow. Coming at it with fire. But to your point, a lot of people, uh, you don't like to see a company change their metrics when they're going through some competition or some struggles or that type of thing. What concerns me more about here is the slowing growth in in, uh, subscribers coming up. They burned through $3.3 billion worth of cash. They say that's a peak, but their long-term debt is increasing. Now I've got a company that has multiple competitors that are actually online, actually coming in, and I think they are going to take some market share from Netflix. So for me, it's a no-touch at best.
Yeah, I would just say there's a lot of problems in the data. I mean, we got to hear what they have to say in the call. But when you think about it, they're going to anniversary this um, price increase that they had last year. When you think of these competitive um, offerings that you have by some of the, the, the richest companies on the planet, when you think of Apple and Disney, that sort of thing, who are underpricing their product, they're giving the first year away for free, and they're taking back all of their content. I think that's a huge issue. And then we have all these other launches. And the, the point about the peak cash flow burn, to me, you're telling me that they're going to lose all their best content. And and they have all this new competition that is subsidizing these offerings, and they are not going to burn more cash flow. They're, they're tacking on a ton of debt. Um, I just don't see it. Well, I, I think you're right to talk about the lack of pricing power because we all know when they got up to fifteen ninety nine, nobody blinked. It seemed like a big day. Now, the, the other side of that is, look, we've now had the first quarter where Disney Plus is out there, Apple Plus has made their announcement, and here they are showing that they actually beat on total global subs. Yeah, and they underperformed in the U.S., and people are going to say, that's why. So if I'm Netflix and I'm bullish on Netflix, I'm going to tell you that, look, in a move away from linear TV, and Reed Hastings seems to be focused more about this than talking about competition, there's enough, and I think I heard rising tide and all this other stuff taken off. So look, um, a, a decent quarter. I think, Dan, the number you work, worry about in terms of pricing is really the cost of content. And they're going to spend maybe $8 billion in 2020 on content mm. as they look across at the competition. So it's less about how much can they actually charge. It's how much are they going to spend? It's a great time to be alive if you're a content producer. There'll be never another time like this, I think, in global history. Let's bring in somebody who doesn't have to speculate because he knows from which he speaks, and that is longtime media executive Tom Rogers. If I gave all your titles, the show would be over. It would, certainly t- it would be a Netflix view. <laughs> By the way, they would count that the as a The only title Just that matters your, is guest titles. on Fast Money. That's, That's, what, it. Go. That's what we like to That's hear. That's why you keep coming back. Um, <laughs> is this peak Netflix? No, I don't think so at all, and I am quite optimistic about the future of Netflix. You've got to remember, they're playing a different game than everybody else. Next year, they're likely to introduce 130 international series. We're talking about a company that is growing globally at close to 30 million subs. Just to put that in perspective, HBO over the last five years with Game of Thrones, I think probably once in a decade kind of hot property to have on paid television, grew 4 million subs over the course of that tenure. Netflix is in a very different league than everybody else. The issue, I don't think, is so much, are they slowing because of competition? Look, people thought they were going to slow because it was going to be binge and disconnect. Find your favorite series, binge and disconnect. That didn't hurt them. Is new new competition going to slow them a bit? Maybe. But the real issue is they've hit 60 million, two-thirds of all broadband subs. They're going to continue to grow just based on the demographic trend. We're probably going to see below 80 million cable and satellite households next year for the first time since 2000, 20 years ago. That's a trend of continued disconnect, and they're going to benefit from that. Slower growth than they've had, but growth. Uh, the fact that growth that- overseas, Tom, because I think we all we no, do. So- I, I think we do tend to get myopic, and we look at the U.S. We talk about HBO Max and Apple TV Plus. That's not. In India. I'm talking about <laughs> growth in the U.S. They will grow with the demographic trend that young people are not taking cable and satellite anymore. Younger households are going to continue to take Netflix and streaming services. And as that demo grows older and older, they will continue to benefit from that overall trend. It will not be as fast as overseas, but it will continue to grow. Now, the idea that they're spending overwhelmingly on programming compared to everybody else is absolutely true. But if you do the math and you believe that they're going to be 
There are 165 million global subs now, probably 175 million by the end of next quarter, something close to that, although they guide it a little lighter. I think you will, it's not hard to see 300 million subs in their future at $15 ARPU globally, which with the price increases they've taken, you can see that happening. Even spending $20 billion a year, $12 billion on originals, you can see this thing throwing off real cash when they hit those kind of numbers. And that's what everybody's now looking for. Is this a cash hole that they never dig out of, or is this thing really going to produce meaningful cash flow? And I think if you believe they can hit 300 million subs at 15 million, I'm sorry, $15 a month type prices, that is easily attainable. Tom, I saw your appearance on the Squawk Box last week, and you were brilliant. A wolf in peacock clothing. That line was genius. But are people <laughs> underestimating what Comcast has been doing over the last six months? The market is rewarding, but do you think there's more reward to come? I, I think the issue with all the other companies other than Netflix and Amazon's a separate category, whether you're talking about Comcast, whether you're talking about HBO Max, whether you're talking about CBS All Access, whether you're talking about Disney, no matter what their streaming play is, and they're all after transitioning to streaming entertainment, they got to manage the downside of the business. And the downside of disconnects, the downside of, of churning cable and satellite is a really big issue. And if you're, not, if you're Netflix and you don't have to worry about that, you don't have to worry about collapsing theatrical windows and releasing movies to first run, where all the others do, among many other issues they have to manage on the downside, they have a much, much more difficult play. I know we got to let you go, but I got to ask about news and sports because I, I was talking to some friends. You know, right now, DirecTV is the only one that has the NFL Sunday ticket. You could pay, and it's people say, why is that on DirecTV? I think it was a 15-year contract. I believe, Tom, it's coming up. Should Netflix go after the NFL? I don't think Netflix needs to. Okay. I think there will be competition for those packages from uh, the fang crowd, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Google, whether it's others. But I think Netflix, as a pure entertainment play, is pretty well positioned. I think the issue is that the streaming wars on entertainment that everybody's focused on is missing a big issue, which is when the cable and satellite disconnect happens and the bundle continues to decline, those subscriber fees that are supporting news programming like this and uh, sports programming like that has a dwindling revenue base. And the issue for all the traditional guys, among the other things they have to manage on the entertainment transition, is how they manage all that live television programming, which will be the guts, which news and sports will be the guts of, how does that get supported over time? And that's the big question that people are nowhere near as focused on as they should be as the entertainment wars play out. Yeah, it is a big question. It's a big question for a lot of people sitting around this desk as well, Tom Rogers. Always great to have your views. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. Appreciate Always welcome it. back, Mr. Fastbody, Tom Rogers. All right. Guy, what do you think? I think he's right about Netflix. I think he's a stud. I say that all the time. And he is. I mean, in this business, that, what do they call that thing? Mount Rushmore? Well, if there was a medium Mount Rushmore. How about just the Godfather? Rushmore, how about the Godfather? I mean. Or that, or that. He could I, be that as well. I mean, all those things. All. I agree. I think Netflix, you know, this quarter, if they don't sell, if the market doesn't sell Netflix off on this quarter where they have the opportunity, it's not going to sell off. I think it's going to trade back to those April Challenge. highs with 385. If, if the, Challenge. If, if the stock doesn't rally, then it's toast. That's the other 20% side. 20% from its highs that it made in 2018. It's just, it's such a laggard. And I actually, there's a lot of things that I challenge, I, mean, I love Tom to death. $15 ARPU for this 
company globally is a pipe dream. It's never happening. It's not what, what, what is it going to be in, in India and, and all these other places. They're never going to be in China. So to me, I just think that well, that, that 300 million yeah. subscribers is a long ways off. They're not going to get $15 ARPU outside the U.S. I, I think we have not yet talked about the stock until you did there, Dan. Look, the bottom line is it's underperformed the triple Qs, which is really its comp base, by 30% year over year. Stock's done nothing for two years. That tells you what you need to know about a company that needs to be profitable sooner rather than later, despite the fundamentals and the structural stuff going on in the industry. All right, good discussion there on Netflix. Basically, by the way, a two-year stock that's been flat. All right, Boeing dragging down the Dow. The company facing another major delay for that 737 MAX. We'll debate what is next for Boeing and its investors. And later, longtime market bull Tony Dwyer says time to take profits now. Why he has turned a little bit cautious, where he says we are headed from here. And as always, you can watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're live from Times Square and back after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back. Another delay for Boeing. Shares tumbling more than 3%. The company saying it does not see federal regulators signing off on the 737 MAX return to service until June, maybe July, or later. Stock now at its lowest level in a year. Or even more delays on the way, and what might that mean, Tim Seymour, for the stock? Well, first of all, this is Boeing doing a complete 180 in terms of how they're approaching the market. So they're doing this with a lot of conservatism, which is something that I think the FAA has wanted them to do. And if, 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 you, if you listen to the new management team, they're certainly on a charm offensive uh, in that direction. When you look at the, just the estimates on the company in terms of free cash flow, in terms of leverage, every push out now is something that analysts can put right into the stock price. Um, if you look at the charts... Breaking 320, 325, and I know you can, you can kind of bend the numbers around with a stock like this, but today's break was a decided break, I think, on the chart. I agree with them. I and mean, we've said it had to hold that 320 level. It held. It bounced. Looked good. This news is disastrous. That 293 low, I think, on Christmas Eve of 2019 is absolutely in the crosshairs. I mean, now the market's going to continue to shoot first, ask questions later, and Boeing is absolutely in that, in that space. So I think you see 290 before you see it back up to 350 here, Brian. Has anybody dove into the, you know, right now we're just talking about getting this plane back up to service. I know I've talked about this a lot, maybe I'm wrong, but has any, nobody seems to have discussed what happens when it returns to service with the public and the airlines. It's going to be hit to the airlines, number one, they're going to be missing these planes through the summer. So do we look at a UAL, an American, and a Southwest? And also, what happens to the airlines when it returns to service if a good percentage of the passengers refuse to get on it? I think most passengers are going to. Everybody I've you talked to, that. I think most passengers are going to say, I don't want to be on it. There's I brought up people that talk wash, people just get no, on it. I don't know. I have, I have asked a lot of people. I don't know anybody's going to get on it. Lots of people have said, hey, maybe you rename the plane. I don't think that's going to work. And the other thing I don't think we've priced in is now that you have this reputational damage to Boeing, everybody, every analyst is going to start looking at every other product. Reports that the Air Force isn't happy with their product. It goes down the line. So I don't think 
300 holds. I think you wait until Warren Buffett starts buying this thing. It comes out someday. Warren Buffett bought it 10% below market. That's the day you buy Boeing. Yeah, I just mentioned this. I can't think back in my career and see a company that had almost $11 billion in net income in one year that would basically goes to a, a, a billion, you know, like, and, and not, and the stock's down 30% from its highs just, you know, what, six, nine months ago. To me, it just, the stock has been out of whack. It's been disconnected from the fundamentals. And I think that June or July seems optimistic at this point. So at some point you're going to see analysts start taking ratchet to the 2020 estimates. And then who knows what happens. But to me, you got to remember this stock traded a hundred Early 2016, traded above 400 last year. Um, to me, I think there's probably more to because go to Phil, that, so. I, I thought they were still producing the 800 and the 907. They were not. Phil Abot corrected me and said, "No, this is their 737 product. This is their product." But they have a ton of inventory already. And and, and look, I, I, you guys could all be right on this, but why wouldn't they be more conservative rather than you know more aggressive? And that's that's what I heard today. I, I don't think I, it's up to them though. I think the FAA has a huge part to play for in this. sure. And I don't think I mean they are going to be uber-conservative, the FAA, with this. I think well past June, July. But just what other choices do you have out there in terms of flying an airplane? And and I think that's something that's going to keep Boeing in much better state. Well, Hanukkah, I learned today, they are still flying the MAX. They're flying it by moving it around from various locations. So they are up in the air occasionally. I learned that today because they got to get it from Tulsa to Victorville, California, or vice versa. All right, for the latest on Boeing, you can head over to our website at CNBC.com. Meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Asian stocks getting rocked as a mysterious new virus spreads across China. And the first case is confirmed in the U.S. We break down the impact in the markets. Plus, some of the greatest investing minds in the world are converging in Davos this week. And they have very different views of where the market is going. So who's right? We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. All right, welcome back. We're following a major developing story that is having impact on the markets around the world. Center for Disease Control confirming the first case of China's coronavirus in the United States. Let's get right now to Meg Terrell with more on what we know and what we don't know at this hour. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, the first patient in the United States confirmed to have this novel coronavirus is a man in his 30s in Washington state. He arrived in Snohomish County, where he lives, on January 15th after traveling from Wuhan, China, where this outbreak has been going on since last month. Authorities haven't yet detailed which flights he took, but said they're working on identifying anyone who may have come into contact with him so they can be monitored for fever and respiratory symptoms. Still, they say the risk to the general public is low. Now, here's what we know about the virus. It's in the same family as SARS and MERS, and it does appear to be able to spread between people. What's not known is how easily it spreads, which will make a major difference in the scope of this outbreak. So far, there are more than 300 confirmed cases, mainly in China and a few in nearby countries, and six confirmed deaths. Here in the U.S., the CDC has implemented entry screening at three U.S. airports, San Francisco, LAX, and New York's JFK, and today said it's expanding that screening to Atlanta and Chicago as well. The patient in Washington arrived before the CDC put those measures in place. Meanwhile, an emergency committee of the World Health Organization will convene tomorrow to determine whether this outbreak constitutes a public health emergency of international concern and what recommendations to make to manage it. And work is already ongoing on potential vaccines and treatments, a vaccine at the NIH and a treatment candidate at drug company Regeneron. But, of course, Brian, it is still early days. Back over to you. Uh, scary stuff and a big story. Meg Terrell, thank you very much. All right, outbreak fears are rattling investors around the globe. 
The Asia market's tumbling overnight. And check out some of the casino stocks, names like MGM, Wynn Resorts, Las Vegas Fans, and Melco. They're all selling off. They've got big properties, obviously, in Macau. And the travel names like Royal Caribbean, Norwegian Cruise Lines, and Bookings, rather, also in the red. So there's clearly real fear surrounding this outbreak. Tim, what is your take on the market reaction? Well, without you know, any insensitivity, because I don't, there's obviously people that are sick around the world, and this is a big global health issue. But I, I can just tell you from a markets perspective, and as someone that was investing in emerging markets when SARS was first diagnosed and became this, uh, this, this epidemic that people thought was going to be a pandemic, um, ultimately the economic impact was zero. Um, it was short-lived, if anything. And, and I think the reaction today is one where people are going to regret selling something into this kind of weakness. No, it's fair enough. But Wynn Resorts, for example, go back and look what the April 20th high was. I believe it came in around 151. Look at where we just topped that at, around 151. You're talking about Wynn reports, I believe, on January 30th with these headlines. You know, my instinct is you have a bit of a double top here in the short term. I think it sells off. I mean, people aren't going to buy it until you get the all clear. I think you've got to wait post earnings to reengage in WYNN. Okay. Your next guest says the spread of the coronavirus could have an impact on your money. Let's bring in now Tony Dwyer. He is Canaccord's chief market strategist. He just took down his short-term forecast for the overall market. Tony, obviously, you know, we, we asked you to come on. We weren't really dealing with this even just a couple of days ago. We'll get to your primary call in a moment. How does this coronavirus... In 2003 with SARS, you saw Chinese domestic spending absolutely collapse. It came back, mm-hmm. but it collapsed and the world was rattled. Will that happen again? It really had a short-term impact. It was a market that obviously was not prepared for that kind of, that kind of disruption. But in the U.S., I go back and I look at it in, in that 2003 occurrence, and it didn't have any impact at all. It had a lot of fear in the headlines, but it didn't really have a market impact. So I'm kind of with Timmy, Brian. I don't really think it, it should have a long left. And that has nothing to do with why we downgraded our market in offensive sectors. I, I know. That's why I tried to yeah. get at in introducing yeah. you. But at the same time, it layers on. It's one of those things that, you know, I think the most important thing we can do in the, in the media at times where you get these headlines and these fear-based things is actually step back and look at what's the history of these things when you get an impact. And it creates a short-term drop, but ultimately when it gets resolved, you just get it right back. So unless, it, unless you believe it's going to become World War Z with, with Brad Pitt, you've got to bet that, that it's going to be temporary and it's probably not a great investment decision. So, Tony, you've been bullish and spot on. You're turning cautious. I want to kind of quantify that. Is this one of your kind of short-term calls where we've gotten overbought too far too fast, but the bull market is still intact? Or are you kind of changing your tactic here? It's, so the last few times I've been on, I've been talking about not chasing the market, BK. I've been talking about holding your positions. Right? If I, I was, as you know, bullish all last year. So I'm fully, I was fully invested. I was saying don't add new money, but stay in those offensive sectors. Let the momentum work for you. It has now become so extreme that, especially in information technology, that it warrants a more aggressive take profit call. For example, we, have, we looked at when the RSI, which is the relative strength index, for the information technology sector, it got to 82 on a weekly close. So the 14-week RSI got to 82. It's only happened four times before since 1990, BK. Your median drop was 13%. The only very low drop in Infotech was 2%. And even there, that was in 1995. You could have bought it better in 1996. So the point is, it's not a... If you look at the chart, those aren't the peak. I don't want to make the peak call, 
but it can be a nasty peak, and I think that's what's kind of lining up here. Uh, any change to your earnings estimate for the S&P? Nothing. Yeah, no, really. You know, I, I love, I love, <laughs> I will not, unless there's a fundamental change in the earnings outlook or the Fed, change my target. That's just chasing my tail. So my target, as you know, Dan, is 34.40. It's been there on 172 in earnings, and I see no reason but, to change that number. That's the other part of my question is, so if you look at Q4, we're tracking below 2% GDP, and look what happened in Q4. We saw this massive right. expansion of the balance sheet. We saw three rate cuts in, in the back half of the year, that sort of thing. How do we get to these high single digits earnings growth on the S&P if we don't have more accommodation? What you're seeing globally, and one of the reasons that we've stayed bullish, otherwise I'd just go outright negative, one of the reasons you want to stay bullish is, number one, the global monetary authorities, every single one of them is going to continue to print money. So if the economic data gets a little bit weaker, they'll come out and do more. Secondarily, a big part of it was this inflection off of such historically weak global growth. Like, all the market PMI data is going into mid-2019. They were tragic. They were about as bad as you've ever been in history. Now you've inflected positive. The new export orders are picking up. The, the percentage of market PMI showing positive year-to-year changes are picking up. So here's the risk to my story. I, I heard a couple of guys talk, and gals talking today about how the risk is if you do get this economic acceleration and the yields go up and the Fed tightens, that'll do it. I don't think that's it. I think they're looking at the wrong thing at this point. I think the risk is you've had this monetary easing and the Fed is still too tight. And you just get this temporary lift in growth and expectations and then it rolls. So I'm watching the initial unemployment claims. I'm watching the market manufacturing data. I'm listening to the conference calls. One thing I do want to point out is going into this earnings season, even though you're right, Dan, things have been reduced a little bit. Everybody's pretty optimistic after the financials, which is had been one of our overweight sectors. You've actually seen a reduction after the good news in the financials. You've seen a reduction in the blended estimate of bottoms-up estimates. So ex-financials, even with the better-than-expected report, they've come down a little bit. All right. So we won't call you bearish, Dwyer, because it's not bearish. It's no. just kind of maybe the peak for now might, might be in. Tony Dwyer, we appreciate you coming on. Thank, Thank you, you very Brian. much. All right, we've got a major interview tomorrow morning you do not want to miss. President Trump will speak with Joe Kernan at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Again, tomorrow morning, 5 a.m. Eastern Time, so set your DVRs as well. Joe with President Trump. All right, speaking of the president, coming up, it's been a big day in Washington. The impeachment trial getting underway. We're going to take you live to Capitol Hill, where we stand right now on a long and so far contentious day one. And speaking of earnings... He was speaking of earnings. Mm. Anyway, one red hot healthcare stock reports results before the bell. Why options traders are betting on it big time when it reports. We're going to give you more on options action. And there's your mystery chart. Much Mm. more fast money right after this. All right. uh, Just in case you missed it a few minutes ago before the break, got a major interview tomorrow. President Trump will sit down with Joe Kernan for the World Economic Forum. The interview at 5 a.m. Eastern Time. It's in Davos, Switzerland, by the way. For some reason, you're on the West Coast. Set your DVRs as well. I'm sure you can check it out on CBC.com as well. But Joe, we'll sit down with President Trump. Well, that interview comes as the impeachment trial gets underway in the Senate. Ron Moy is live on Capitol Hill with more on exactly where we stand as day one, I, I expect, comes to some sort of wrap and what could be a multi-week process here, Elon. 
O'Brien, the Senate is now hearing arguments over whether to subpoena documents from the State Department related to that delay of aid to Ukraine. This is not going to pass, but it is part of Democrats' strategy to methodically force votes and therefore a public debate over whether witnesses should testify in this trial and what types of evidence should be admitted. The real test will be witnesses and documents. Will our Republican senators put pressure McConnell so that we really have witnesses and documents produced, either now or after the arguments are made? Now, Schumer spoke to reporters during a brief break in the proceedings because senators are actually not allowed to speak while the trial is going on. They cannot use electronics. They have to take handwritten notes. And there are reports that a few of them may have nodded off during parts of the trial. Schumer did not say, though, how many amendments Democrats plan to bring up tonight. So everyone is bracing for many more hours of debate ahead. And then, Brian, tomorrow, Senate Republicans are going to turn around and hold a signing ceremony on the USMCA trade deal. So you can see they're trying to create a little bit of counter-programming to impeachment. Okay, Elon Moylan, thank you very much. Uh, let's go around the horn, guys, and trade this. Obviously, we had a guest on the exchange today, Guy Damian, and yes, they said they had polled. Uh, it was Dan Clifton of Strategus. They said they polled about a bunch of institutional investors. They said about 75% of the institutional investors believed that Trump would be reelected. I mean, they liked him or, or wanted him to be reelected, but they believed that to be the case. Is there a risk here where everybody is too optimistic that there won't be that even that small percentage chance? Tell risk. I agree. I mean, I think there is a tell risk to this. And when you couple with what Tony just said, and we've talked about this, there are 20 different indicators right now, metrics that are flashing red. Now, if this was just in a vacuum, I'd say no, I discount it. But given everything else that's going on, I do think there's inherent risk. And I think a VIX south of 13 makes zero sense in this environment. Okay. Well, it's there. It is. A lot of things. All right. Coming up, it's cold. It's beautiful, and there are tons of opinions swirling around. We're going to take a deep dive into the view from Davos about what the big money and big thinkers are saying. Later on, J&J reporting earnings tomorrow. What can you expect from this red-hot stock? Stick with us much more Fast Money in two minutes. I'm more optimistic about stocks than I am about but okay. bonds, uh, because <clears throat> when you look at uh, earnings, I mean, we're going to I think we're going to get some pretty good earnings growth this year. Uh, I mean, the economy, when you have an unemployment rate this low, uh, you, you bring in a lot of consumption, especially people that are low wage workers. They tend to consume 100 percent of their income. The issue is you, you can't jump into cash. Cash is trash. OK, <laughs> you have to have a well diversified portfolio. Now, first of all, you, you have to be global and you have to have balance. I think that you have to have a certain amount of gold in your portfolio right. or you have to have something that's hard. We're just, again, in the craziest monetary fiscal mix in history. Uh, it's so explosive. It's, it defies imagination and I don't think anything's changed. It reminds me a lot of uh, early 99. All right, so that is part of the view for the World Economic Forum in Davos. Obviously, three Wall Street titans there, three very different opinions on the market. So, Dan, Nathan, who do you believe is getting it right out of that esteemed group? 
Can I say who I think Dan thinks is getting it right? First of all, I'm sure Dalio and Tudor are doing just fine. I, you know, uh, here's the thing. Uh, I actually think in Trump, when he spoke this morning, what did he do? He knocked on the Fed. He knocked on interest rates here as being too high. I think one of the, like, what is going to be a great trade this year is going to be long TLT, long U.S. Treasuries, yields going lower. I just don't see what the impetus for them going higher. And if we do get that earnings growth, I still don't see rates going higher. What happened last time we saw rates go up with stocks at the end of 2000? 18, we saw stocks get creamed. So, so it's interesting in the bond market, what happened over the last couple of days is you actually saw real rates, which is inflation minus bonds, go negative out to five years. This is the, the Fed's tips, right? The Treasury inflation. That hasn't happened in five, six years. And the last time we saw that, you saw gold rip, you saw stock rips, you saw any hard asset rip. Why? Because if you're holding money out to five years, you're actually losing money. And that is a huge driver of asset prices. Which gives you a little Dalio there. And I think, you know, not surprisingly, you had the full spectrum there. Dalio sat right in the middle. Not only did he talk about diversification, but he did talk about some of the risks, but at the same time, putting a portfolio together. I, I, I simply say it's hard not to, in this environment, think about asset bubble moments. Because, look, this is what the Fed set out to do. Let's make no mistake. They set to create asset inflation, and they're being very successful. It may not be in, in all of our best you know, interests, and it may actually be financial oppression, but that's what we have here. And obviously, you know, listen, Scott Miner, Guggen, I'm more of a bond guy guy, right. but the reality, he's basically saying bonds stink. Go with the equity markets. I mean, he's throwing in the towel. Yeah, they, well, in his opinion, they stink. I'm more in the Dan Nathan camp, who's not a bond guy, and I think TLT continues to rally. I mean, again, the greatest economy in the history of mankind, and we have a 10-year yield of 177. It's telling you something. I think gold does go higher from here. And listen to Paul Tudor Jones. Think about it. He yep. he thought about his words, and he still came out with something that provocative. Think of what he did in 87. I mean, he, he was Flying on the right side of the bad trade. There yep. you go. All right. We've got a lot more coming up from Davos tomorrow. In fact, we've got an interview with the president tomorrow morning. Joe Kernan, President Trump, sitting down live from Davos. That interview at 5 a.m. Eastern time. Remember, Squawk Box starts early tomorrow because of Davos. So if you can't tune in live, set your DVRs. Big interview there. By the way, also on deck that day, you got Jamie Dimon, the CEO of Uber, and James Quincy. It all kicks off tomorrow. Special Squawk Box, longer version, live from Davos. By the way, Ginny Rometty also mm, in G- that Gina. great line. All right, coming Virginia, up. Right? Feeling good. How options traders are gearing up for J&J earnings. Plus, why don't we get a check on our Kramer camp? Jim is chatting with the Costco CEO. And stock's been on fire this year. Should you buy it in bulk? That's Jim's full interview coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money. In the meantime, we are live at the NASDAQ, and we're back right after this. All right, welcome back. Shares of Johnson & Johnson hitting another 52-week high. All this ahead of tomorrow's earnings. And options traders are betting on even more gains when the company reports their results. Let's get down to Mike Cohen, San Francisco, to break down the options action. Mike. Sure. So we saw more than two times the average daily options volume in Johnson & Johnson going into earnings. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about 2.1%. That's slightly less, actually, than the 2.5% that it's averaged over the last eight quarters. And where we saw much of the opening activity today was in the February 28th expiration, 152.5 strike calls. Those were being purchased for about $1.55. So buyers of those calls are risking about 1% of the current stock price on a bet that the 
stock could rise about 3.5% or so by February 28th to get above that break-even. Now, what's interesting to me is if you take a look at the distribution of prices after earnings, you're going to see how inexpensive options are. While asset prices and everything else have gone up, options prices are still quite low. All you would need is a 3%, 3 3.5% move to the upside to benefit, or if it went down more than 1%, you're better off buying these calls than buying the stock. All right, Mike, thank you very much. For more options action, always tune in to the full show Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. All right, up next, it is your final trades. Obviously, people think of uh, one of our main competitors in, in Uber, but I think about our competition as the transportation status quo. And right now, the average American household spends $9,000 every year owning and operating a car that they use 4% of the time. I think that's ridiculous. Our opportunity is to give people affordable, accessible transportation like never before. That was Lyft co-founder and President John Zimmer speaking to CNBC. The company announcing a bicycle-sharing partnership with NBA superstar LeBron James. You can read more on our website, cnbc.com. Lyft, by the way, underperforming Uber this year. Tim, you maybe your thoughts on these stocks. LeBron is gold, but if you look at these stocks, it's up 11%. It's had a big run, big downgrade actually in the last two days. UBS downgrade from 78 to 64. Stiefel downgrade from 78 to 61, I think. I don't think you need to chase this one. Okay, don't chase Lyft. It is time now to go around the horn in our final trades. Tim, why don't we start with you? Well, J&J might be a bit of a chase here, too, but this is a very different company. And, in fact, if you look at 2020, Pharma's going to grow 6%. I think their medical devices starts to reaccelerate here. It's not crazy cheap, but I do think in this environment, if you are nervous, this is a great company fundamentally. Okay. So the big knock on gold has always been it costs money to hold on to it in a negative real rate environment. That's out the window. Gold rips higher. Dan. Yeah, Netflix. I would not be chasing it after that quarter and that sub-guidance. So to me, I'd sell into it. All right. Seller of Netflix. Good energy tonight, Brian. And despite my butchering of her name, I think IBM is turned (laughs) the proverbial corner. All right. Likes the big big corner. Good stuff. And the stock's popping on that. Guys, thank you very much for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. Mad with Jim Cramer starts right now.